These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Once upon a time, there was a woman named Maud whose rich husband passed away. She inherited half his vast fortune. Soon, men moved in to take advantage of the situation to romance her out of her money. She needed help before all her funds were gone. One day, a man came into her life that promised to fix everything. He chased away all the fortune hunters and took over her finances. To Maud, her sister, and mother, it seemed like he was the answer to everything. But was he, or was he no better than the rest? Today I have the story of Maud King and how she entrusted her fortune to one of America's most notorious men. The private detective, salesman, bootlegger, forger, swindler, murderer, suspect, blackmailer, and con artist, Gaston Means, on the 204th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic that I would like to know more about and write it into an engaging story for you to listen to. At least that's the idea. Now, I've never seen the HBO show Boardwalk Empire before, though I hear it's good. It's a crime drama starring Steve Buscemi, and it's chiefly set in Atlantic City during the Prohibition era of the 1920s. Actor Stephen Root plays a character called Gaston Means. Means is a private detective, and he's also a salesman, bootlegger, forger, swindler, blackmailer, and con artist. And the thing is, Gaston Means was a real guy. And although Boardwalk Empire takes a few liberties with history... His portrayal of Gaston Means, from what I understand, is pretty close to accurate. When I first thought of doing the story, I was going to do the whole story of Gaston Means, you know, from birth till death. And, but the thing is, there are so many strange, almost unbelievable stories about the man, I'd have to go through each one so fast I couldn't give it the attention it deserves. So instead, I thought I'd talk about one of his particular crimes. It might be the worst. But I'm pretty sure I'll come back to him for future episodes. So let's get to it. Story of one of the biggest liars in American history. Forgive my informal appearance. It is unconscionably warm in here. You are? Well, my general preference is to remain anonymous. But Gaston Bullock Means, Special Investigator, United States Department of Justice. Where is Jess Smith? Jess Smith is conspicuously absent. How is that an answer? Client enters. The payment is placed in the bowl. The client leaves. Who has seen whom? No one has seen anybody. And the Republic survives another day. This is your idea? It has the twin virtues of simplicity and mystery. Gaston Means was like no one I've ever come across before. He had no problem lying, cheating, stealing, maybe even murdering to get what he wanted. In fact, it went beyond that. 
Means seemed to take a particular delight in accomplishing a successful swindle. Even when he was in court, and it looked like he'd be sentenced to years in prison, he kept up a confident smile, enjoying the attention he was receiving. There's a bit he wrote in his biography in which he brags about stealing money from his mother as a child and blaming it on the maid. He said nothing ever sounded so sweet as the jingle of the coins in his pocket, knowing not only did he get away with the crime, but also he got the maid fired as well. J. Edgar Hoover once called him the most amazing figure in contemporary criminal history. The author Francis Russell, who specializes in American history and historical figures, described Gaston as a swindler for the joy of swindling, a liar proud of the credibility of his lies, a confidence man able to make his feats and deceptions works of art. There are just too many great stories about this con artist to do them all in one episode. On this episode, I'll tell the story of Gaston Means and a widower named Maud King. It's just one of many great stories. You see, Mead always had a scam going, sometimes more than one at the same time. Now, before I get into Maud King, how about a little history of the man? Gaston Bullock Means was born to a very well-off family in Concord, North Carolina on July 11, 1879. To the townspeople, Gaston and his two brothers, Brandon and Afton, were meaner than hell. Yet at the same time, they had a southern gentleman's charm. By the time Gaston was a teenager, he weighed 200 pounds and was 6 feet tall. His father was a lawyer, and that perhaps influenced him a lot. He once said about his father, he was no more honest than any lawyer. In fact, there were times when his father would use his large son to intimidate witnesses or jurors during a trial. Gaston graduated high school and went to the University of North Carolina. His grades were always poor as he made no effort. He joined the football team but never made it beyond the practice squad, again because of a lack of effort. He did have the odd habit of sitting in restaurants for hours, watching other people, and making notes. He claimed to have graduated in 1903, but apparently he never graduated. He was thrown out years before and never went back. After college, he worked various jobs, everything from a teacher to a salesman. In 1909, he was living with a woman named Edith Poole as man and wife in New York. Eventually, well, after he gave her an STD, he offered to marry her, but instead took a job in Chicago and left her behind. That did not make Edith happy, and she sued for breach of promise. In court, Gaston attacked her character, accusing her of affairs. One thing about Gaston, he would make up anything, create any story, if it would get him out of trouble, and he would enjoy himself while doing so. In this case, it seemed to have worked because Edith dropped the suit before her reputation became too tarnished. Gesson was 34 years old and working for Cannon Cotton Mills as a salesman when he met a lady named Julie Patterson, a pretty 23-year-old debutante from Oak Park, Illinois. For a while, she showed no interest in him. After all, he was a large, balding, older man. But Gaston, the smooth-talking salesman, finally convinced her to go out on a date. She was a girl who lived a fairly sheltered life, an innocent Catholic girl, and Gaston's talk of the world and the way he bragged about himself fascinated her, and eventually she fell in love. 
And suddenly, Julie said later, I was in love with him. I was wild about him. On October 14, 1913, the two married. Now, Julie had a friend named Maud King, who had recently been widowed. Maud had been married to a wealthy Chicago lumber baron named James C. King. When he died, Maud discovered that he was a lot wealthier than she had thought. He was worth an estimated $4 million. That's equal to over $100 million in today's money. Maud had to go to court to get her fair share of the money. In the end, she got a lump sum of $600,000 and $400,000 a year for the rest of her life. The rest of the money went to the James C. King Home for Old Men, a charitable organization that King had always dreamed of. After making generous arrangements for her sister, two brothers, and mother, she would end up getting $70,000 a year. That might not sound like a lot, but it's equal to over a million and a half dollars in today's money. Meanwhile, Gaston found himself unemployed. He told Julie that he was leaving Cannon Cotton Mills because he wasn't getting credit for his ideas. But the truth was, he was being fired for his lies, including trying to pass himself off as the son of the owner, James Cannon, in order to get better sales. The couple ended up living in a poor Chicago boarding house, something that Julie really hated. Gaston was able to find work with William J. Burns. Burns was the chief of the Secret Service, but now owned his own detective agency. Means had several ideas that really impressed Burns, including a bank protection plan, as well as a membership program for automobile owners who would pay a yearly fee for the guaranteed investigation of their autos if they were ever stolen. During his employment, he was assigned to investigate the North German Lloyd steamship line. Now, this was in the early days of World War I, when the United States had not yet entered the war and was still neutral. He would become Agent E-14, working for the Germans as part of another scam. But that's another story for another day. By the summer of 1915, things were going better for the means, and they moved to New York. It was then that Maud King and her sister, Mary Melvin, got a hold of Julie. Julie was delighted to have company since Gaston wasn't around very much. As they talked, Julie found out that they had a problem. It was men who Maud had a weakness for. They were basically romancing her to get a hold of all her money. Since her husband's death, Maud had traveled the world and met a lot of men along the way, and it didn't help that she liked to drink. She had been married three times and had a number of affairs since the lumber baron's passing. They asked Gaston, since he worked for a detective agency, if he might help. Gaston Means jumped at the chance to help a wealthy widow. At the time, Maud was married to, but separated from, a Dr. Chance, and she had begun a romance with a man named Salvatore Giordano, an opera singer. Means was able to get her divorced and chased away Giordano, now wanting to be close to all three women, which were Maud, Mary, and their mother, he moved everybody into expensive apartments, three that were all next to each other. They lived in three apartments that cost $9,000 a year. That's over $200,000 a year in today's money. He also spent a fortune on expensive furniture and art, as well as an office for himself. He became her financial planner and got her to sign over power of attorney and convinced Maud to sue for more of her dead husband's money. 
he started using her money to play the stock market. And on top of all this, he played poker and dice with her once a week, in which he supplied her with plenty of booze. It was basically just a way to take more of her money. But soon the money was getting low. To everybody's surprise, Gaston announced that there was an unknown second will. In that will, Maud was entitled to all the money from her husband, including the trust fund for the James C. King Home for Old Men. Maud was so happy she promised Gaston Means a quarter of all the money he collected. She even drew up a formal contract in which she promised in writing to give him $950,000 if they collect the other $2 million. And, of course, it was all a scam. The new will was being forged by Gaston and some associates. With the funds getting low, the group had to give up their expensive apartments. They sold their cars, fired their servants, and moved into a hotel in Chicago. Gaston also invested heavily in the cotton market just before the market collapsed and he lost everything. The money Maude was getting a month wouldn't even cover their expenses. But Gaston never told her that, and she kept spending money like she had all the money in the world. Eventually, Gaston started keeping her in her apartment, and Maude was getting a little upset that she wasn't able to travel the world like she used to. He assured her that things would be taken care of soon. The only hope to get out of this mess was the second will. And by July of 1917, he had finished the forged document. But Gaston knew things were falling apart, and it was only a matter of time before all was discovered. Due to Maud's restlessness, Gaston began doing things to amuse her, like a barbecue. One day he tried to get her out on a flat-bottom boat, but Maud refused, because she was afraid of water. Next, he tried to get her to go for a canoe ride, but again, she stubbornly refused. And then in August, he suggested he and Maud go out into the woods for a little gun target practice. So on August 29, 1917, Gaston, Maud King, and Gaston's brother Elfton all went out. Gaston with a handgun, and he got a little handgun for Maud. Also included in the trip was Captain W.S. Bingham, a local cotton buyer. When the trip was done, Maud was dead. She walked with me down to the spring, Gaston wrote in a letter, carrying her new Colt 45 in her hand. I had a 32 with me. As we came near the spring, she handed me the gun. I said I wanted a drink of water from the spring. I placed the gun in the crotch of a tree and told her not to touch it. The tree stood on the edge of a marshy spot. It was muddy around there. She stayed back while I went towards the spring. Just as I was stooping down for a drink of water, out of the corner of my eye I noticed her reaching for the gun, and I called out for her not to touch it as it was loaded. Then I took a drink, and the next thing I knew, I heard a shot. I glanced around and saw her stagger. I jumped up and ran to her and got there, it was only a few feet away, just as her legs crumpled under. She collapsed in my arms. I called Afton and Brigham, and we called for the car. He goes on to say, by the time they reached the hospital, she was dead. As you might imagine, quickly, suspicions rose that this wasn't an accident, especially since Maud had been shot in the back of the head. The coroner reported that it was an accident, but on further examination, when the body was exhumed from its grave, it was found there were no powder burns behind her ear where the bullet had entered. That means she couldn't have shot herself. Gaston Meads would stand trial for murder. The state contended that Meads had 
looted the woman's fortune and killed her to escape an early account. Witnesses asserted that Means kept the woman a virtual prisoner in a Chicago Beach hotel. The defense denied this and offered evidence to show that Mrs. King approved Means' speculations with her money. It didn't take long for them to see that her fortune had disappeared as soon as Meads took over her finances. A big break came for Meads and his lawyers when it was decided to have the trial in North Carolina. That's where Meads was living when he was arrested. There was talk about having the trial take place in New York, and that would have been devastating for Gaston. You see, even though some in Concord, North Carolina thought Gaston was a son of a bitch, he was their son of a bitch. And they took offense to New York and Chicago lawyers, what they conceived as the North, invading the South once again. In fact, his lawyers told him he was better off to stay in jail, not to pay bail, for he would seem a mistreated symbol of Northern authoritism. Maud's sister and mother took separate sides. The mother, who thought Gaston had forged documents to take all her money, took the prosecution side while Mary Melvin supported Means. Now, to say this wasn't a fair trial might be an understatement. This was an area where Means was well-known and liked by many, and many thought this was a case of big-city northern lawyers coming into their town to harass a local. Two of the jurors were part of the Means' extended family. During the trial, Gaston talked confidently as he protested his innocence, and he did his best to show that he was being bullied by northern lawyers. But as the trial came to an end, even Gaston thought he was going to be found guilty, and he whispered into his wife's ear, I guess this is the end for me. It looks like goodbye, sweetheart. The following day on Sunday, the jury returned. They found Gaston Bullock Means innocent of all charges against him. Gaston threw his arms around his wife Julie and hugged her. The prosecution was stunned, but there was nothing they could do. Gaston was a free man. Yet, amazingly enough, he still wasn't done. He still wanted to prove that that second will was real. And now he was doing so for Mary Melvin, Maud's sister. But before he got started, he needed to prove that he was a good person, not a murderer. In exchange for the government supplying him with a letter basically saying that he was a good guy, helpful to America, he said he could supply them with a trunk full of German spy papers. A deal was made, but when the trunk arrived in Washington, it was empty. An outraged Gaston Means accused somebody of stealing all his papers. Meads promised to find the scoundrels who stole them and get the papers back. But an army investigation revealed that the trunk weighed the same when it arrived as when it was sent. The government never gave Meads the letter that he wanted. But still, that didn't stop him. But the thing was, Gaston never thought he'd have to go to court for the second will. He assumed the Northern Trust Company wouldn't want the hassles and would settle. But soon he learned that the Northern Trust Company was planning to fight this all the way to court. So between August and December of 1920, the battle for Gaston to prove the will's authenticity was battled in court. In court, everything went against Gaston. Testimony showed that the witnesses to the purported will were out of town the day it was signed. The typewriter used to type the document was not even yet manufactured when the will was purportedly written, and King's signature and those of the other witnesses were not genuine. 
The will was officially declared a forgery. The judge said, No fair consideration of this case can ignore the fact that Gaston B. Means has shown a controlling and dominating spirit in an attempt to establish this will. Indeed, the conclusion is irresistible that Mrs. King and Mrs. Melvin were singularly under the influence and were largely dominated by his strong personality and inflexible will. So that ended that. But there's one little last bit to this story. You see, Gaston Means owed his lawyers $57,000, but he and Julie were flat broke. Yet he promised to send money to the lawyers in Chicago. When it reached the law offices of Roy Keene, Roy gathered a bunch of witnesses around, opened the box, and instead of a stack of bills, a block of ordinary wood fell out, and nothing more. I thought so, Roy said as he set the box down. Of course, Gaston Means claimed the money was stolen from the Southeastern Express Company, and he threatened to sue unless they gave him $57,000. He was told to go ahead and sue, and that they would enjoy the subsequent trial against Meade for fraud. Determined to help rid America of the scourge that caused the death of their first son, Colonel and Mrs. Lindbergh flew across the country to testify for Mrs. Evelyn McLean in the trial of Gaston B. Means charged with attempting to defraud her of $35,000. Means is now serving a 15-year sentence for taking $104,000 from Mrs. McLean. A little bit before I go, even though Gaston and Julie Means were flat broke, their story is far from over. This is just one of many Gaston Means stories. I've got a few more I want to tell, and I'm sure we'll come back to them sometime in the future. Now, a lot of the story came from the book Spectacular Rogue, Gaston B. Means by Edwin Palmer Hoyt. And you know what? I condensed over 80 pages in the book down to five. There's a lot more to the story, and I would advise reading the book Spectacular Rogue if you'd like to know more. And this book wasn't my only source. In fact, I started it with a few other sources, including a video of a talk about Means at the Marianne Public Library in Marianne, Ohio, called the original flimflam man, how Gaston Means fooled a nation. That talk took place on November 9th, 2007, and it's very interesting. I'll have a link to the video in the show notes below. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment Podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link at the Coffee with Jeff website. If you've got a few shekels you can afford to donate to keep the show going, I'd be forever grateful. You can do that by contributing to my Patreon page. Again, information can be found at Coffee with Jeff. Hey, and why don't you tell your friends about the show? That would be fantastic. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason, even to say hi. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would love you to join. You're encouraged to suggest story ideas at any of these places. wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to everybody who posts this on social media. 
you have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks with some story. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but it's going to be something good. Trust me. Bye. Yeah.